Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, it's still October here on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. And you may have noticed that we've been talking a good bit about farm animals this month. That was not by design. It just sort of happened that way. But, you know, it started with discussing elf shot, which uh, was this uh, folk belief about uh, wounds inflicted often on cattle and horses by supernatural fairy weapons. Uh, And then we talked about the cattle mutilation panic of the 1970s. And all this talk about livestock actually brought me back to a question I've wondered about in recent years, uh, and I'm glad we're finally getting around to devoting some episodes to it. What is the deal with goats and evil incarnate? (laughs) Modern audiences will probably think of a particularly awesome bit of goatish devilry from the 2015 historical horror film The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much for those of you who still haven't seen it. If you haven't, it's great. But uh, let's just say the movie overfloweth with mega creepy goat stuff, uh, a link between goats and demons and Satan himself. And of course, this link between goats and demons and occult magic is not original to that film. There appears to be a long running association between goats and beliefs about witchcraft and devil worship, not so much in New England, where that movie is set, but uh, especially in continental Europe, where 
the goat form was an important part of, for one thing, the imagery of Baphomet, a uh, figure that we'll definitely come back to in more detail later in this series, but a figure that I think uh, Christians associated with evil because it was allegedly worshipped by the Knights Templar and later by other occultists. Uh, I think emphasis on allegedly, would that square with your understanding, Rob? Oh, yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll we'll touch on that later. And then also, you can when you start talking about occultists and some of the uh, occult usages of Baphomet and uh, and Baphomet iconology, like you, that breaks down a bit as well, because <laughs> you get into like, well, what what is worship and what is what is the occult, and you can certainly go down some rabbit holes there as well. But apart from Baphomet, even the goat pops up in all other kinds of uh, continental witchcraft imagery. Some of the greatest examples that uh, come to mind for me are two similar paintings by the Spanish Romantic artist Francisco Goya. The first one is a painting from 1798 called Witch's Sabbath, which depicts a coven of women gathered in a circle around an upright he-goat in the moonlight, and the goat's horns are magnificently curled, as if curled by the physical substance of evil, and they're decorated with branches of oak leaf, and his four hooves are outstretched like the arms of a man, kind of like you, you might see uh, depictions of sleepwalkers with their arms stretched out in front of them, but also almost like a king holding out his hand so that you can kiss his ring, and the women worship Shipping the goat are offering up children for human sacrifice, and you can see bats circling the moon above. It is an absolutely splendid depiction of malignant magic and terror, and uh, I love this painting. Yeah, this is an interesting painting because, on one hand, yes, it is invoking the uh, the, the the very fictional idea of, of witchcraft and. Uh, and sacrifice that was, as we've discussed in the show before, is, is very much a part of the like the campaign against imagined witches and, mm. uh, and played a huge part in witchcraft persecution of very real human beings. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the, the, this particular image is a lot more chill compared to some of the, like, the various woodcuts you see that were used uh, during the periods of witchcraft persecution and drumming up, you know, fantastic ideas of satanic worship. Like this one, aside from you know, the offering of, of the children, um, and, and even then, the offering of the children, it, it, you, it could be that you're just holding the child up to better see the great he-goat. Um, <laughs> Otherwise, you know, folks are just kind of hanging about, and here's the goat, and the goat looks not particularly evil, but but kind of regal. Well, yeah, I think some of that ambiguity uh, might come down to what this painting was intended for, uh, mm -hmm. because I'll get back to that in just a second after I mention there's another painting. Um, strangely, this one is often known by the same title, uh, the, the Witch's Sabbath, but with the subtitle, The Great He-Goat, or El Gran Cabron. Uh, this one was fi finished sometime in the early 1820s, but I think it was not actually intended for public display. I think uh, Goya just did this one like on a wall in his house. But in this one, once again, you've got a congregation of witches gazing up at their goat lord in terror and awe. But now the goat is just a dark silhouette in the foreground with horns and a little billy beard and his body draped in robes like a priest. As brimming with menace as these paintings are, 
I, I think scholars of Goya do not typically understand these artworks as depictions of a literal belief in witchcraft, uh, but more kind of the exact opposite as satirical works about superstition, uh, human brutality, and about religious persecution, because Goya was apparently a devotee of the Enlightenment, and uh, I've seen his occult paintings described as a sort of mockery of the witchcraft trial mentality and of the Spanish Inquisition and the darker side of human nature in general. Uh, because, Rob, as you just reminded us, of course, a belief in witchcraft and occult magic did lead to terror, oppression, brutality, and human sacrifice but not so much at the hands of witches, almost exclusively at the hands of people who thought they were opposing witchcraft and heresy rather than practicing it. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps reaching for some faint evidence of the divine themselves. Uh, yeah. yeah, this reminds me of another piece by Goya that I actually, actually talked about in the Monster Fact episode at some point in the last year or so. Uh, a 1799 piece titled, uh, oh, the translation is Here Comes the Boogeyman or Coco. <laughs> Uh, and it has a, a robed figure, and there are these two children held by a mother, and the children are screaming in terror and you know trying to look away from it, and the mother's gazing up at the boogeyman almost with admiration. Uh, and it's it's a lovely image that touches on some of these elements you're talking about because the backstory for this image is not the boogeyman is real, or it, it is more like look at at what parents have done by engaging in this kind of supernatural nonsense, uh, this kind of supernatural terror uh, to control their children, uh, look at the world they're helping to make through this sort of thing. And yet, I think it's funny that despite the clearly ironic intention of these paintings, Goya was a master at creating deliciously frightening monsters, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, including these these great he-goats, including the El Gran Cabron. So the question for this series of episodes is why? W what is the deal with this cultural association, primarily stemming from Christian continental Europe, between goats and devils, or goats and wickedness? And does the thematic harmony of goat and, uh, and evil at all relate to the biological features of the goat as an organism? Yeah, it's a great question, because really, if your main uh, relationship with goats is via like goat satanic imagery and uh, baphomets and uh, you know uh, you know heavy metal iconography and so forth you might say oh yeah yeah goats are scary but if you've been around goats uh, either goat farms or various petting zoos at zoo, you know at, at zoos where children are encouraged to meet the goats and the sheep and to pet them and groom them you'll quickly realize that in real life goats aren't really scary at all like generally speaking the scariest thing about a goat is well i might step in poop or if they're a little <laughs> revved up, one might butt me a little bit. Uh, <laughs> or, or might nibble, like if I have a map hanging out of my pocket or something. Uh, they might try and eat something they're not supposed to. But for the most part, yeah, the, the goat is is more comical and weird, and at least to my eyes, as opposed to anything that is nefarious when you're actually experiencing them firsthand. I actually had a face-to-face -face with some goats just a few weeks ago at a, at a farm that was attached to a restaurant I went to, and the goats were just hanging out by the side of the fence, so I, I went and, uh, and, and communed with them a little bit. And I walked away from that thinking, yeah, goats are kind of cool. They just seemed like chill, like yeah. kind of friendly, uh, maybe more 
more of a sense of awareness from the goats than I've gotten when I've been around like cows. So there's a kind of curiosity or implied intelligence, but also that they were just cool. It's like they wanted to hang out. Yeah, they they have a lot of personality, I've found. I mean, you also find some that are totally zoned out in petting zoos. Like I've been I've been touched and, and, and combed <laughs> and brushed by children so much that I, I, I don't even register it anymore. That sort of thing. But uh but a lot a lot of times, yeah, they have a lot of a lot of character and the the babies are quite cute. So uh so yeah, in in, in, in real life I find goats to be uh, rather harmless. So I think it's probably good to put some very basic goat biology up front, and then maybe we can come back to more specific goat science questions after we explore more of the goat lore. So the goat, uh, for starters here, the goat is one of humanity's oldest domesticated animals, tracing back at least to the 5th millennium BCE, perhaps to the region of Turkestan. Uh, Goats have spread around the globe with their humans since then, thriving everywhere except Antarctica. Uh, we, we domesticated the goat, we take the goat with us, and the goat tends to do really well in various environments. Yeah, the goat is kind of rough and ready. The, the, the goat is hardy. Uh, so the scientific name of the domestic goat species is Capra hircus, H-I-R-C-U-S, with the genus Capra belonging to the bovid subfamily Caprini, also known as the goat antelopes. So the taxonomy from top down goes like this. You've got the bovids, and the bovids are all cloven-hoofed ruminant mammals. This includes antelopes, cows, bison, buffalo, things like that. And then the bovid subfamily Caprini includes an assortment of genera such as musk oxen, sheep, uh, various kinds of four-legged mountain critters that you would probably look at and say that's some type of goat. And then, of course, the genus Capra, which contains the true goats. With Capra hircus, the domestic goat, there are hundreds of breeds selected for different traits, but broadly most domestic goats are raised for one of three things, either milk or meat, or skins and fiber uh, for the coat. Uh, So when it comes to fiber, you can think about cashmere, cashmere wool that comes from goat breeds such as the cashmere goat. And mohair, as in uh, electric boots and mohair suits, is made from the wool of the angora goat. Confusingly, the wool known as angora does not come from the angora goat, but from rabbits. Goat milk, uh, especially when made into goat cheese, uh, can be quite amazing. Yeah, it tends to have a friskier flavor than cow milk. Mm -hmm. You get more of that grass tang in there, I think. Uh, But so, okay, uh, humans have been herding domestic goats for thousands of years, probably going back 10,000 years or so, uh, longer than most other domestic animal species. So how did that happen? Well, domestic goats are mostly from an original wild species known as the bezoar goat or Capra uh, igagris. Though there are a few breeds that are descended from uh, another wild species known as the Markor or uh, Capra falconeri. The Markor is awesome, by the way, and, and worth returning to later. Uh, but I was reading uh, one highly cited paper investigating the evolutionary history of the goat, how we got from these wild ancestors to the domestic goat. And this was a paper by Syed Naderi et al., published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2008, called The Goat Domestication Process Inferred from Large-Scale Mitochondrial DNA Analysis of Wild and Domestic Individuals. 
So as we know, one of the most important turning points in the history of the human species, probably the single most important, was the emergence of farming, which includes both plant agriculture and domestication of livestock. And goats were one of these early domesticated farm animals, likely through a process where the wild ancestor of the goat was a prey species, tracked and hunted by humans, and then at some point that hunting relationship transitioned into a herding relationship. Which, by the way, fascinating to try to imagine the step-by-step process of, of how exactly that happens. Yeah. But these wild goats, the ancestors of domestic goats, were typically a mountain-dwelling species that lived in relatively harsh and rocky environments and in the woods rather than in just flat, fertile plains full of delicious grass. And uh, this raises an important distinction for, for goat biology, which is the grazing versus browsing distinction. So... You can think of ruminant mammals like sheep and cattle as grazers. They usually prefer to eat low-lying vegetation such as grass, whereas goats typically prefer to browse. So goats don't just put their heads down and eat nice grass. They browse on trees and shrubs, uh, so they prefer to keep their heads raised up instead of down to the earth, and they'll pick at leaves and fruits and buds and twigs from higher-up food sources. Though at the same time, uh, if a particular environment invites them to graze more uh, or to, 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 to eat more from lower down, they mm. will do that too. They're very versatile, oh, yeah. and that's one of the reasons they've been so successful. Oh, yeah. They will definitely eat whatever they can get. It's, uh, But I, I think the distinction is that you're not going to typically find like cows and sheep trying to browse up on variegated higher higher up food sources and goats absolutely will that's part of their natural repertoire right and it's also always amusing you know given their 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 mountainous uh ancestry that uh, anywhere you find goats you'll often find them atop whatever they can get atop of mm-hmm. uh, be it a, a rock or a shed or <laughs> uh, occasionally uh, the roof of a building uh whatever they have access to it goats goats like to to get a little uh, height uh, so they can see what's going on around them exactly yeah you often see the, the oh the goats up on top of the chicken coop there you yeah. go <laughs> Uh, But anyway, in the study I mentioned, by comparing DNA from uh, modern domestic goats with the modern relatives of their wild ancestors, this study zeroed in uh, on the the idea that the earliest version of this herding and domestication relationship and uh, the emergence of the domestic goat probably took place in eastern Anatolia and uh, possibly the northern and central Zagros Mountains, which are a mountain range extending from eastern Turkey down through uh, Iraq and Iran. And I think it's interesting that some of the traits still visible in domestic goats today can be traced to this evolutionary history we're talking about, especially if you think about uh, you know, goat bodies, goat brains, and goat behavior as adapted to more difficult environments like woods and mountains as opposed to plains full of green grass. Uh, and you can see this represented in some misconceptions about goats that contain a grain of truth. For example... If you watch old cartoons and stuff and you see a goat in the old cartoon, what's it going to do? It's going to eat a tin can, right? Right. No problem. Goats just eat tin cans. Well, that's not true. Obviously, this is not real and you should not feed metal or any other kind of uh, potentially dangerous garbage to a goat. But there is a grain of truth there. It is reflective of the fact 
that humans have long noticed goat feeding behavior is more curious and adventurous and promiscuous than the typical feeding behavior of some other familiar domestic ungulates like sheep and cows. Yeah, and it's why many of the places you'll find goats in the world, you'll you'll find them often living in otherwise very urban environments, um, you know, and not uh, you know, concrete jungles, perhaps, but but places where, yeah, there's vegetation around, uh, they're between this building and that, and the goats can get to it in ways where you, you, you know, probably wouldn't have a cow grazing there. Yeah. So being natural browsers who eat leaves of plants that would be poisonous to other animals, we eat fruits and buds and twigs and shoots and sometimes even tree bark, goats will search high up in their environment for potential food sources and will try out all kinds of things. Like other ruminant mammals, goats break down their high-fiber diet with the help of a multi-chambered digestive system, where the foregut actually uses bacterial fermentation to break down the rough vegetation and extract the maximum usable energy. So the goats in their foregut, they got a chamber in there where they're making sauerkraut out of the, the leaves and the grass and the twigs. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, we can come back to more discussion of goat biology later, but I was thinking if we're looking for cultural links between goats and the devil, it might be good to look at the uh, the sort of mythic processing of other biological features of the goat and see what other products those features get baked into. So one thing that that screams for attention to me, if you're uh, certainly to anyone who's familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, is going to be the creature known as the satyr or the fawn. Absolutely. And this is this is tremendously important to the discussion of, of goat iconography in Western traditions and, and the classical use, of course. Uh, the idea of these, these goat men... Uh, that, that are generally human from the from the waist up, uh, with some goatish features of the head, and then goat-like from the waist down. And uh, yeah, there there are a number of wonderful works of art that have depicted uh, these beings, and uh, they, they kind of run the gamut. Like sometimes uh, uh, a satyr seems kind of serene, you know, playing music in the woods or frolicking in the woods. Other times they have a very um, uh, sinister edge to them. Other times they're just, you know, being flayed alive, uh, that sort of thing, depending on the, the artwork in question. There are numerous specific uh, myths and tales about satyrs where the, in the end, the satyr uh, suffers a, a humiliation or punishment or defeat of some kind. They often just like that. It doesn't turn out great for them. Yeah. And the, the flaying in particular, uh, that's a reference to the, the flaying of Marsyas in which uh, the god Apollo flays uh, the, this particular satyr. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a grotesque uh, sequence that you'll often see depicted in statues and paintings. 
So at any rate, yes, when we're talking about the the classical Greek goat man, we're talking about the satyr, and this carries over as well into Roman traditions of the faun. Uh, Carol Rose, the folklorist that I often refer to, points out that uh, the original satyrs were depicted as human males with goat legs and horns that represented, quote, the fruitfulness of the land. Uh, so I guess it's one of those things where if you have satyrs frolicking about, if your environment can support satyrs, uh, then everything's everything's going all right. Uh, like clearly, this is an indicator of a uh, of a very robust environment. Hmm. But the form shifts over time, as mythic bodies tend to do. And at one point, she writes, there's a type of satyr that is described as having no nose on its face and breathing instead through a big hole in its chest. <laughs> Later, uh, satyrs take on the form we're more familiar with. Human faces, pointed ears, horns, and uh, the lower body of a shaggy goat, the upper body of a human male. They attend their drunken leader, Silenus, and serve the god of wine, Dionysus, or Bacchus. They live in the woods, they chase nymphs around, and they are known for their, uh, quote, aggressive drunken sexuality, lechery, rudeness, and love of playing pranks. So, you know, to humans... Uh, there's an unpredictability about the satyr. Uh, there's possibly a danger to the satyr. Um, and, uh, they, and, and in this, they're also the origin of the word satire. Uh, but, but also in all of this, I think they nicely sum up a lot of attitudes towards the wild. Like the wilderness can be fun. The wilderness can be amusing and serene, but the wilderness can be dangerous. And, uh, and it may... It may care nothing for you at all. It may take interest in you, uh, interest that you do not want. Yeah. Now, by the medieval period, Rose writes that they become more of a a grotesque hybrid and are often used to represent just pure debauchery and lust, uh, often depicted with erect phalluses to, to drive home this point. But at the same time, it was also said that, uh, and of course, we've, we've discussed this sort of thing before, uh, where there are accounts of the monsters and strange creatures uh, that live in distant lands. So it was also written that, oh, if you go to Ethiopia, you will actually find satyrs. They're difficult to catch, but they live there. The travel guides of the ancient world were so bad. Zero stars. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so yeah, I, I was reading about satyrs, and one thing I noticed is that they were being described in conflicting ways. Like it seemed sometimes they're described as having these uh, goat-like features, and other times I read them as having horse-like features. So I was trying to make sense of that, uh, and I, I found a good reference, uh, an Oxford University Press book called Classical Mythology, A Guide to the Mythical World of the Greeks and Romans by a scholar named William Hansen. Uh, this was published in 2005. And according to Hansen, the overriding feature of, of satyrs is that they're associated with the countryside, of course. So, you know, the wilderness as opposed to settlements and that they are hybrid beasts. They are exclusively male. They tend to be hairy. They walk upright on two legs. They've got, as you said, uh, often exaggeratedly large genitalia, and they incorporate some type of bestial features, though early on these features are the legs and tail of a horse rather than a goat. That's kind of interesting. Uh, so some depictions lean more on the, the bestial elements and others make them more just kind of like ugly, wild humans. But what's the deal with the horse features versus goat? So Hansen says that satyrs were originally horsemen uh, who, again, had the legs and tails of horses. But over time, they blend together with depictions of the god 
Pan, who was explicitly and always a goat man. So by the Hellenistic period, so that's about the 4th century to the 1st century BCE, after the conquest of Alexander the Great, at this point, satyrs are being depicted pretty regularly as goat men instead of horsemen. This horse-goat uh uh, uh, split is interesting because we'll we'll come back to this again regarding uh, and not only the goat horse split but uh, the idea that some hybrid entities that are described in di- different folk traditions the goat uh, a- aspect may shift other times it may be another creature but sometimes it leans more goat and I think you can learn things about what these animals mean in people's minds by seeing what kind of animals get swapped out for what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so these later pan-blended goat satyrs are usually shown hanging out in the countryside, playing the flute, chasing nymphs, dancing, uh, associating with Dionysus, the god of the grape harvest, of fruitfulness and fertility. Actually, the god of a lot of things, of, of festivity mm-hmm. and drunkenness uh, and all kinds of stuff. In literary traditions, Hansen digs up interesting references to satyrs as being, quote, worthless and unsuited to work. Uh, But another thing that really caught my attention is that satyrs, since they are exclusively male, cannot reproduce to create their own kind and are only said to be created by the union of two otherworldly beings, uh, such as a god and a nymph, or by the union of a god and a human. And uh, there's an interesting comparison here, I think, to other figures that are considered demonic in some way. For example, in ancient Near Eastern literature, I think of stories from early Judaism about the creation of demonic beings when the sons of God come down from heaven and father children with human women. The, the offspring are often said to be giants or some kind of evil beings. If you want to read more about that, you can look up the tradition of the Nephilim or the uh, story in the, the book of First Enoch. Mm. Now, I know there's more about satyrs we need to come back and talk about, but since satyrs were originally horsemen who became goat men by merging in tradition with depictions of the god Pan, what was the deal with Pan? Who were, who were these? Uh, what were these Pan uh, illustrations all about? Well, once again, to reference that uh, OUP handbook uh, by Hansen, Hansen writes that Pan was the god of shepherds and flocks, and he makes his home in the wilds of Arcadia. And while you, you'll find a lot of satyrs with horse forms in earlier sources, it seems like Pan's grounding in the goat form is, is rock solid. So to uh, read from the Homeric hymns, so the Homeric hymns, by the way, are an anonymous collection of hymns to various Greek gods dating back uh, to probably the 7th century BCE or sometime around then. This one I found is number 19. And when I started reading it, it was so good. I just, I I have to like do an actual chunk of the text. (laughs) So this is a hymn to the great God Pan translated by Hugh G. Evelyn White. The first part of the hymn goes like this. Muse, tell me about Pan, the dear son of Hermes, with his goat's feet and two horns, a lover of merry noise. Through wooded glades he wanders with dancing nymphs who footed on some sheer cliff's edge, calling upon Pan, the shepherd god, long-haired, unkempt. 
He has every snowy crest and the mountain peaks and rocky crests for his domain. Hither and thither he goes through the close thickets, now lured by soft streams, and now he presses on amongst towering crags and climbs up to the highest peak that overlooks the flocks. Often he courses through the glistening high mountains, and often on the shouldered hills he speeds along, slaying wild beasts, this keen-eyed god. Only at evening, as he returns from the chase, he sounds his note, playing sweet and low on his pipes of reed. Not even she could excel him in melody, that bird who in flower-laden spring, pouring forth her lament, utters honey-voiced song amid the leaves." At that hour the clear-voiced nymphs are with him, and move with nimble feet, singing by some spring of dark water, while echo wails about the mountaintop, and the god on this side or on that of the choirs, or at times sliding into the midst, plies it nimbly with his feet. On his back he wears a spotted lynx pelt, and he delights in high-pitched songs, in a soft meadow where crocuses and sweet-smelling hyacinths bloom at random in the grass. Oh, that's beautiful. And I think one thing that instantly hits me about uh, multiple passages in this is it, it, it almost seems like it's ruminating on the, the nature of the, the herdsman. Because yeah. uh, the, the hunter, of course, goes out into the wild and acts as a predator, uh, essentially. Uh, and then... When we have modern situations of, say, highly industrialized farming and, uh, and and the rearing of animals, generally not with goats, but more with, say, cattle, there is the taking of the animal out of the natural world, placing it in an unnatural situation, and treating it more or less like a thing. But mm. with the, the this 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 ideal, this older vision of the herdsman, the herdsman goes out and kind of lives like the goat at least for periods of time. Like, yeah. you ha he has to go out with the goats to the places the goats want to be. And you can imagine this sort of merging of the two, like the, the herdsman and the goat as one. He, he is a mountain critter. Yeah. And I like the delicate balance in this hymn depicting Pan on one sense as a kind of dangerous outsider and earth rim roamer, and on the other hand as a as a, a, a soft and, and delicate and uh, a friendly representative of the of the the dewy glades and the and the song of the brook. Yeah, and I wonder too about the the detail about the wearing of the spotted lynx pelt. You know, the, the wears the pelt of the hunter that would otherwise endanger the flock. That's that's so many wonderful details in this. So the part I read was just the first half of the hymn. The second half of the hymn tells the story of how Pan was born. And it says that uh, he's the offspring of the god Hermes, who in this telling is a is a rustic god, a god of, uh, again, of the, the countryside, uh, and of a human woman. And the hymn says that when Pan was born, he emerged with a goat's feet and with two horns, and he was noisy and loved to make merry. And then it says, quote, but when the nurse saw his uncouth face and full beard, she was afraid and sprang up and fled and left the child. But despite the terror he strikes in human hearts, Pan is loved by Hermes and the gods. Hermes is a big fan of this goat child, and he takes him up to Mount Olympus and shows him off to the other gods, and the other gods love him too, especially Dionysus, and they name him Pan, which literally means all, because he delighted all of their hearts. Mm. 
So, list of things we have now learned about the god Pan. Uh, as we already established, he's a hairy wild man who has goat feet and horns and a beard like a billy goat. And he's the god of shepherds and flocks. He rules over the wilderness. Pan is known as a very lusty god, uh, known for exaggerated and constant sexual arousal. And in keeping with this, he has power over the fertility of livestock such as sheep and goats. Uh, but here's another aspect that's really interesting for our purposes. Did you know that our English word panic actually derives from the Greek word panikon? And the cognate there with the god Pan's name is not a coincidence. Panikon is said in ancient sources to mean relating to Pan. Originally, panic was not a noun. There wasn't a panic. Panic was an adjective describing a type of fear, often the type of fear that suddenly comes over people with no apparent rhyme or reason. And this seems to work on the logic that since Pan was the lord of the wilderness, when a person walks alone in the woods or on the mountainside, and out of nowhere, they become infected with an irrational anxiety and a dread. Maybe they just heard a twig snap or they felt a breeze and they get that chill. It's like there's something watching me. There's something dangerous out here. That was Panicon Dima or the Fright of Pan. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, because if we think back, uh, you know, for the most part, the, the woods, the wilderness, this is the place where we would feel rational anxiety. Uh, m modern humans get to pour their irrational anxiety into so many other things and places. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, for, um, particularly for non-seafaring folk, uh, this would be the place. This would be where that fear would overcome you. Totally. Uh, now, but that is one type of panic fear. There's another type of panic fear described in other sources that seems to be more like the fear that suddenly comes over soldiers en masse, draining them of courage mm. and causing them to flee the battlefield. Uh, and this is related to stories that the Greek god Pan also had such a booming voice that if he shouted over the battlefield, it would cause his enemies to, to freeze in terror and give way to a rout. But anyway, putting all this together, I think it's really interesting how well Pan, the god Pan, and the uh, satyrs and fauns that were later stamped in his image match elements of the demons that would preoccupy some in the Christian world. So you've got a goat-human hybrid with hair and horns, who is the unholy offspring of the union of God and human, uh, who's got an association with uh, sinful activity, with lust or lasciviousness, and who strikes panic into the hearts of fragile mortals like us. Yeah, there seems to be a direct line there. But the interesting stuff about satyrs doesn't stop there. Yeah. Now, w one thing about these these depictions of satyrs, it sounds like um, you know so many of these stories are again. It's like encountering something something in the wilderness. It might be of danger to you. It might be of mild interest. And then we also have this mention of this, like the Pan origin story of a child born as satyr uh, being found frightful. And, uh, and and perhaps ominous, even if it does seem to be something that delights the gods. So I was rather uh, amused when uh, and, and interested when I read this passage from uh, uh, Jorge Luis Borges' uh, book on fabulous creatures, uh, which is totally worth picking up if you have a chance. Uh, but he shares this bit concerning the Roman general Sulla, who lived 138 through 78 BCE. Quote, 
Legend has it that one of these minor deities was captured in a cave in Thessaly by the men of one of Sulla's legions and taken to the general. It made inarticulate sounds and was so repulsive that Sulla immediately ordered it be returned to its mountain lair. And that is from uh, the Book of Imaginary Beings. So I, I, oh. that's just so fascinating, the idea. Like here, uh, Sulla's troops are out. They find a satyr uh, or something like a satyr. And they're like, well, we got to bring this. We got to pass this up the chain. Let's bring this uh, to the commander. And, and he, he brings it to him. And he's like, oh, this is, this is horrifying. Uh, please take it away. Or at least that sounds like what occurs in my reading of this one passage from uh, the Book of Imaginary Beings. Uh-huh. But, but it gets more fascinating than that. I was reading into this a bit more. So first of all, for, for anyone unaware, Sulla was a, a powerful Roman general who ultimately revived the Roman dictatorship. And I found a fabulous uh, discussion of this in A Seder for Midas by Jean Sorabella from 2007. And apparently this particular incident uh, in, involving Sulla comes from the writings of Plutarch regarding an incident said to have occurred near Apollonia in Greece. Quote, Here they say a satyr was caught asleep, such an one as sculptors and painters represent and brought to Sulla, where he was asked through many interpreters who he was. And when at last he uttered nothing intelligible, but with difficulty a hoarse cry that was something between the neighing of a horse and the bleeding of a goat, Sulla was horrified and ordered him out of his sight. Interesting that the nature of the cry could be read as either a horse man or a goat man, uh, given that these are the, the two different traditions of the satyr. Yeah. Now, Sorabella writes that the tale in question here inserts mythic happenings into a straightforward biography. And this may stem from Sulla's own memoirs, where, uh, where, where it was known that he, uh, he put an emphasis on dreams and portents. It may also refer to traditions of King Midas, and uh, the finding of a goat man uh, here is apparently meant to be a portent of victory as Sulla returns to Italy, defeating his enemies ultimately and becoming a uh, dictator of Rome. Uh, the finding of a sleeping satyr and even holding it temporarily was apparently seen as a good portent, despite the, the depictions of horror <laughs> here upon finding one. Um, uh, and despite the fact that one of the most famous stories of finding a satyr, that involving King Midas, has a dark twist to it. So I, I found that fascinating. Mm. It's like, here is this strange creature we found in the, in the wild that may be this you know, half-divine entity. And it's horrifying to look at. It's horrifying to, to listen to. But it also is a positive. It's not a, a dire omen. It's not, oh, well, we're screwed now because look what nature turned up. It's like, no, look at this strange marvel. It's horrifying. I think we're going to have a good day tomorrow. <laughs> Even though he has to order it out of his sight. Yeah. Now, the, the, the myth of King Midas, of course, that kicks off with the finding of the satyr uh, Silenus. And upon returning the creature to the god Dionysus, uh, Midas is rewarded with the granting of his famous wish, right? Uh, the result being that everything he touches turns to gold, which does not work out well for him. No, that's also a bad portent. <laughs> yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend 
or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, the later version of the Greek satyr with goat-like characteristics is often conflated with a Roman mythological creature known as the fawn. Uh, These are regarded as basically the same creature in, in most ways. And it does seem like there is major overlap between the two. The fawns get their name from an ancient Italian deity called Faunus, uh, which in turn is similar to Pan, a god of the countryside who was half man, half goat. Uh, in the in the Italian tradition, he's associated with the wilderness and the sounds echoing through the woods were you know the voice of Faunus. And like Pan, he is also associated with the uh, Dionysian side of life, or I guess in the Roman, the, the Bacchic. Or uh, you might also just think of it as kind of the id in a way, like the drive toward hedonistic pleasure and merrymaking. Now, understanding that a lot of these mythological goat-flavored beast men were known for representing a kind of uh, inhuman pleasure-seeking behavior or specifically inhuman sex drive, it's worth asking, is that actually reflective of anything about goats as animals? Yeah, this was a question that that I had because uh, again, I I've never raised goats. I haven't lived among goats, but I've I've been around them plenty of times and I, I honestly don't remember being in the presence of goat copulation. Uh, uh, the, certainly there are other animals that I've, I've seen in, in various places where uh, that have engaged in such behavior, uh, but uh, but with the goat, I'm like, well, where does this come from? Is the goat actually randier than other domesticated species? So, and see, so I was looking at a few different sources on this, uh, you know, because obviously this becomes part of, like we've discussed, the satyr myth, uh, the idea of Pan, and and ultimately these ideas of satanic goat men and and the horned one. Uh, but uh, but just for starters, when it comes to animals that actually have notably high reproduction or sex rates. Goats generally don't make any of those lists. Generally, the real superstars in this area, certainly with with mammals, are going to be rodents, various Mm. species of rodents. Some are famous for, like, essentially rutting, the males anyway, rutting themselves to death. Mm -hmm. But, of course, we have to remind ourselves that humans have been living in close proximity to goats for a very long time. Uh, and simply get to observe more of the day-to-day goat life. And then, of course, we tend to personify anything animals do as well. Right. I was thinking, I mean, you've got goat herds, not rat herds. So you don't, you know, people are probably watching the goats more than they're watching the rats. Right. And of course, we've, we have a very long association with, with rats and mice, but they stick to the shadows. Uh, yeah. The goats do not. The goats have a privileged status uh, within our, our environment. So I decided to look into goat reproduction more. And so this led me to a few different uh, ag science materials, uh, including one very helpful article from the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff by livestock specialist David Fernandez. And there's actually quite a bit of variety in the reproductive cycles of goats. Again, they've been domesticated a very long time. You have different lineages of goats, different varieties of goats. And Many of them are doing their breeding in definite seasons, such as fall, while others are going to be active, sexually active year-round. Latitude, Fernandez says, plays a key role in seasonality. Mm. 
But I think this bit from Fernandez does give us a bit more to go on regarding the randy nature of the he-goat, especially in Greek and Roman tradition. Quote, Copulation in goats usually lasts less than two minutes, but they will often mate several times while the doe is in estrus. Bucks must be carefully monitored during the breeding season, especially young bucks, because they spend so much of their time mating that they fail to eat. Bucks can lose up to 25 pounds over the course of the breeding season. Wow. Okay. This is starting to make sense. Yeah. So I think we can well imagine how and why the Randy image of the he-goat might stick in people's minds. Uh, and, and they'd also have a vested interest in it all, right? Because y- you want your goats reproducing, and you are also invested in the health of your he-goats. So uh, I noticed uh, some other animal science papers also referring to goats as a quote-unquote promiscuous species in which male goats are trying to mate with as many females as possible. So again, take all of that, combine it with the fact that People are living in close proximity to goats. They're seeing this, uh, you know, generally like day to day. If you were out there as a shepherd, I mean, it's your job to, to keep track of what the goats are doing. And then again, we cannot help but personify the goat. We can't help but do this with any kind of, of species, especially when we look at their reproduction, uh, you know, many of which are engaging in reproductive uh, styles and cycles and relationships that do not translate well uh, or favorably into the human realm. Um, but we can't help but look at them as behaving as sort of like people and then using those animals as models for different sorts of people and making often moral uh, uh, judgments based on that. One of the profound absurdities of the human condition is we're just going to be making uh, moral judgments about the sex lives of goats. Um, I'd say another factor that that might be involved in ideas concerning uh, satyrs and fawns is that goats can assume a bipedal posture either to reach higher vegetation, to aid in climbing, or to aid in budding other goats. This is frequently, if you've ever spent some time watching goats, and especially the younger goats, uh, like buck, bucking each other, uh, you know, head butting, uh, they'll often do this thing where they'll sort of rise up on their rear legs and then kind of use gravity to, to, to butt at something. But on top of this, they can also balance on their back two legs and move around, uh, which even today makes its way into viral goat videos. There's one, I think, from uh, somewhere in India that I sent you, Joe, because it's just yep. a very short video of what appears to be just a goat walking down the street briefly on its hind legs. Yep, just a straight two-leg walking habit, like it's a, like it's a you know, evil-possessed somnambulist, basically. Yeah, uh, and but- you only have to see that once. Like, yeah, <laughs> given a like any given like community, only one person would have to see that once to really sort of get the momentum going. I think for various other ideas. Well, I mean, I think it's part of that uncanny valley principle that like when you see an animal that's acting kind of human in a surprising way, that gets the mind churning about evil magic. And so, yeah, seeing a goat walk on two legs, you can easily imagine somebody getting freaked out about that. But it's also interesting to to think about the underlying biological reasoning there. Uh, And I haven't confirmed this is the reason, but just supposing on my part, I I think it's reasonable to assume that as browsers rather than exclusive grazers, goats may well be adapted to get back up on those two legs, not just so they can headbutt each other, but just so they can reach higher branches. Like if they're browsing on trees and shrubs, you know, they want to pop up and forage from something that's a little higher up. It would be useful for them to be able to balance on back legs for a moment. 
Right, because a lot of tasty bites you might be able to achieve by by climbing up with your your front legs a little bit. But sometimes you got to just you got to just balance. You got to just go into a bipedal posture and get up there. Okay, I got another goat biology uncanny valley thing I want to explore uh, because this is a biological characteristic of goats that I could easily see causing people to look at goats in a sinister light. And it is that some goats sometimes bleat in a way uh, that sounds remarkably similar to a human voice, moaning, wailing, or even just screaming. (laughs) This is not an observation original to me. It is actually the subject of a number of, once again, internet memes and viral video compilations going back nearly a decade. Yeah. I mean, goats do sound a little bit human (laughs) sometimes. Um, And of course, they're not the only ones. I I, I just spent a lot of time around sea lions in in the Galapagos Islands, which we'll come back to later. Uh, But uh, I, I have to mention these creatures briefly because especially the females and the pups sound very human at times as well that can be distracting and even maybe a little a little uncanny where mm-hmm. it, it either sounds like some, like a human is coughing or it, it, it they're warbling trying to speak like they just don't know English or, or whatever or Spanish or whatever your, your native language happens to be but they're trying to say something perhaps to you oh absolutely it is clearly an unsettling experience to have a non-human animal address you in tones that sound too close to human mm-hmm Let's hear a few of those goat screams. Now, a big qualifier is that not all goats sound the same, as one could tell just by listening to the diversity of humanoid groans and yelps uh, heard even within these goat voice supercuts. Goats produce a a wide range of vocalizations, and it is only some goats some of the time that that can Wilhelm scream. And uh, I tried to find a good source with a zoologist explaining the similar sounds in the the cries of anguish and torment that you hear from, you know, a goat just standing there uh, versus a human and, you know, in in like the the pivotal uh, dramatic scene in the movie. I didn't find anything super compelling. One thing I came across was a 2013 article in Slate by Forrest Wickman, which addressed this question by interviewing a few goat experts. And here were some of the main takeaways there. Uh, First of all, for some reason, several of the goat wizards interviewed here did not seem to find this subject especially amusing. I don't know. Uh, Another is that uh, some of the animals producing humanoid screams in these viral videos are not actually goats. A few are, you know, a few sheep snuck in there too. So again, not exclusive to goats. So maybe we should be saying that, well, some sheep and some goats and maybe some sea lions too make these humanoid noises. Um, one thing that did seem useful to know is that goats yell for a number of different reasons. So goat handlers will tell you that Sometimes they yell when they want to be fed. You know, if they're lining up at the fence for a meal, uh, they might scream at their caregiver. Mother goats and young goats both yell when they become separated. Uh, And then there is a quote in this article from Dr. Jean-Marie Lugenbuhl of North Carolina State University, who uh, specializes in goats. And this researcher says, quote, in my experience with goats, it does not take much uh, for them to scream bloody murder as if you are torturing them when simply handling them. So sometimes goats are kind of dramatic. 
Now, what you mentioned about mother goats and young goats uh, yelling when they become separated, that, that also reminds me of sea lions a bit in mm-hmm. that some of the vocalizations that occur uh, with the females and with the, the young ones are uh, communicative uh, in nature. Mm, yeah. So as best I can tell, the primary explanation for the similarity in the sounds would just be that there are some coincidental structural similarities in the vocal production organs of humans and goats and apparently some other animals, some sheep and and some sea lions and stuff. However, I did turn up one very interesting goat behavior study uh, that, again, does not directly answer this question, but kind of grazes it. And the study is by uh, Elodie F. Briefer and Alan G. Uh, McGilliot, published in Animal Behavior in 2012, called Social Effects on Vocal Ontogeny in an Ungulate, the Goat, Caprahircus. Now, you might notice a stark difference in the range of vocalizations that are available to humans compared to those that are available to most other animals. Humans have a large degree of what the authors here call vocal plasticity, meaning, quote, the ability of an individual to modify its vocalizations according to its environment. So we've got good vocal plasticity, but most animals that are capable of producing sounds with their voices actually produce a relatively constrained repertoire of sounds. Uh, But there are a few exceptions found among mammals and birds. You can probably easily think of the birds that have a a big range of uh, vocal modulation and control. Interestingly, some of the mammals with high vocal plasticity uh, include bats and whales. Hmm. But one kind of unique feature of human vocal plasticity is that it is affected by our social environment. We modify our voices and speech to sound like the people around us, especially the people around us when we're growing up. And this, of course, is why people who speak the same language but grow up in different regions will end up with different accents. The authors argue that prior to their study, there was no documented evidence of anything like this in other mammals. But could it be the case that in other mammals, especially other uh, mammals that are highly social and highly vocal, that they could develop something similar to different accents by social grouping? Well, a good example of a non-human mammal that is both highly vocal and highly social is, in fact, the goat, a a shrieking, moaning, social (laughs) herd animal. So the authors proposed to test this out on kids, meaning young goats. Could the social surroundings of goats affect the sounds they make? And the answer is, to some extent, yes. Uh, The authors found a strong genetic component to voice similarity. So full sibling goats had more uh, similar voices than half siblings. But also, half siblings that were raised in the same social group had more similar calls to each other than those that were raised in different groups. Quote, the group-specific indicators in kid vocalizations show that goat call ontogeny is affected by their social environment. This suggests that vocal plasticity could be more widespread in mammals than previously believed, showing a possible early pathway in the evolution of vocal learning leading to human language. So, factors determining the sounds uh, produced by young goats 
are strongly influenced by genetics, but surprisingly also influenced by the social environment. What other goats they're around? And so you could view this as analogous in a way to goats developing different accents based on their 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 groups. Uh, now I want to be a hundred percent clear. There is no evidence I've read whatsoever that this vocal plasticity would extend to domestic goats adapting their voices to sound like humans, like they're human farmers and herders. But I guess at least it's an interesting possibility to wonder about goat experts write in. Is this crazy idea possible that I don't know goats spend enough time around humans? Is it possible that they could slightly adapt in a human vocal direction or is that absurdity? I don't know. Even without getting into that though, just the mere idea that you're in close proximity with these social mammals that communicate to some degree through vocalizations and 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 have different vocalizations that they're utilizing. That's enough to sort of bridge that uncanny gap between us and them and mm-hmm. to allow room for folklore uh, to emerge between the two. I mean, it's one of the things that makes goats interesting. It's not, I mean, it's one of the things that makes sea lions interesting as well, like because they're, you watch these animals and they're engaging in social behaviors that are different, very different from human behaviors, but also not so different that we can't anthropomorphize them. And then they're using their voices to some degree. So even, even if ancient peoples, especially were not privy to all the, the, you know, the bullet points that we've laid out in these studies here, they would have picked up on the fact that that something is occurring, that there's some sort of communicative uh, relationship going on. And Mm. that, there is the the goats are raising a, a goaty mirror to our own way of life. Well said. Uh, I think we have to cut goats part one right there. So we'll we'll come back in the next episode to talk about uh, goats in the the Hebrew Bible and in Christian traditions, goats in other myths and traditions from all around the world. Some more fascinating goat science. It's going to be a blast. Absolutely. So join us for the next goat episode. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be some more creepy stuff in there, but also some uh, some 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 of the uh, ideas we're going to be looking at are going to be go less demonic and more divine. So uh, yeah, uh, there's a little something in there for everybody. In the meantime, of course, you can find all the episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, do we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. 
Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 